The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, so if you're interested in studying with us, please reach out to me and let me know. I would love to have a member of my admissions team get in touch with you and learn more about your sense of call to the ministry. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming into the studio through Skype a good friend of mine, Pastor Chris Hutchinson. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. Chris is senior pastor of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Blacksburg, Virginia, and prior to entering the ministry, he served in the U.S. Army, including a combat tour during Operation Desert Storm. He's been a pastor in the PCA for quite some time now, and he served a number of congregations. Today, we will be discussing his new book, Rediscovering Humility, Why the Way Up is Down, published this year by New Growth Press. According to the preface, this book is an explicit call to return to the ancient path of humility as the one pilgrimage most necessary for Christian faith. And Chris, my first question about the book is is really about the church. What about the church, and particularly about the church in Western culture, and even specifically in America, makes this book so needed today? Soon after I came to Christ, when I was about 17, um, I became part of the evangelical sub-movement um, within America, and I just noticed that even though it was doing a lot of good things, Humility was not on its mindset a lot. A lot of emphasis on numbers, on individual gifts, on celebrities, um, power. And, and I, as I read the scriptures and I grew in Christ, it just seemed to me that, that the church really was neglecting this, this central aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. And how would you classify the book? What genre would you say it sits in? I, I guess I would say it's practical theology. I mean, my dream would be for seminaries to actually uh, include it in their practical theology um, curriculum. But I think it's also very helpful for, for lay people as well. Uh, so the first half of the book deals more with individual humility, and the second half deals with humility within the church. What is what? What do humble churches look like? So, I think there's enough here for your average Christian that's that wants to grow in Christ, and also for church leaders uh, to be challenged in how they lead their churches in a more humble fashion. That's exactly the sense that I had as I was reading through the book myself. Is just how uh, applicable it is for um, the person in the pew or the person behind the pulpit or the elders to the side of the pulpit. It really is a helpful book, and, and I'll be recommending it to my classmates and my professors here at the seminary, um, especially I need to put this in front of Dr. Ryan McGraw, who teaches our Reformed Spirituality course, a first-year class for you know, first-year seminarians as they consider their calling and, uh, and, and the moral uh, requirements of the ministry and just the personal devotion and, and other uh, individual aspects and how to promote that in the Church. Um, what authors and, and works, passages of Scripture, life experiences were particularly influential to you as you wrote the book? It goes way back again to when I first became a Christian, and I noticed uh, humility within the writings of C.S. Lewis. So everyone loves C.S. Lewis, and for good reason on, on the Christian life. I obviously don't follow him in all of his theology, but just the way he understands uh, humility being central, so that influenced me a lot. 
And then when I was in college, I began to study the Puritans more. I took a couple of courses on the Puritans, uh, even in a secular college. Uh, got to study under George Marsden with, uh, for that. And, and so Jonathan Edwards, his theology, I would say, imbibes the, the logic of humility. Uh, and then when I was in the Army, I grabbed a little book from a, a local Christian bookstore called Humility by Andrew Murray, and that influenced me a lot as well. So kind of all of these sources, Richard Sibbs, great Puritan, and just really there's there's quite a bit of diverse um, uh, diversity of different books and, and sources that weave their way into the book. And you give a, an account in your book of, of when you were actually deployed uh, to the Middle East, and you had in your rucksack a, a handful of books with you, and they were all dealing with this theme, the theme of humility. That, that's a long story. I just grabbed a bunch of books and threw them in, but the one that really stuck with me was Andrew Murray. In fact, I still have that copy on my shelf today, and it smells like motor oil. Uh, just from being in a in a uh, mechanized infantry track for several months. You've organized the book into four parts. You have humility introduced, humility found, humility embraced, and humility impli- applied. Clearly, we can see the logic at work there. How does this organization of the book serve your goal of calling individual Christians and the church as a whole to follow the way of humility? Well, what I, I noticed is that Three different times in the Gospels, Jesus uses the phrase, everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. And in a sense, that's a summary of the Gospel. That's the choice that is um, given to every human being. Will they exalt themselves and then end up in hell, basically? Or will they acknowledge their need for a Savior, come to Christ, and then in God's time, be exalted. So what's interesting about those three different phrases is they're in three very different contexts. So one of them is, has to do with the Pharisee and the, the publican or the sinner. That's Luke uh, 18. And so that's, that's humility found, getting into the gospel of grace. We need grace to be saved, and that humbles us to the, to the earth. The second time is when Jesus talks about um, when you are at a, a wedding feast, do not invite yourself up until you are invited. And then also he says, when you throw a feast, make sure you do it to serve those who cannot repay you. And so that has to do with, I'm calling that uh, humility embraced, that, that we are embracing humility because our hope is in the, uh, the resurrection, not, not now. So our, our relations with one another, we live for others and not ourselves. And then the, finally, this one deals with the church. The, the more difficult one is Matthew 23, where Jesus uses that phrase, that same phrase about humbling yourself. He uses it to rebuke the religious leaders of the day. And so that's where I, I apply that to the, to the church of today, that we've often failed the humility test. Now, when we speak of humility— there's a Christian understanding and a worldly understanding. You give both in the book. How does the Christian understanding of humility differ from popular notions of humility that we find in the world? I think I've put somewhere in the book that everybody likes humility, especially in someone else. The world is a very surface idea of what humility is. They, they, they attach it to a certain kind of personality type, a sort of meek and mild personality, but really biblical humility works deep into the heart. It's not something we can create. You can't make yourself more humble. 
It's as you pursue Christ more and more, the Holy Spirit works humility in us. And it looks different in different people. And we're inconsistent in our humility. I'm humble about some things and proud about other things. And I think just I think a Christian sense of humility, again, is Christ-centered and it, it is more self-aware than um, the world would, would often uh, promote and, 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 and needs more of God's grace. As um, Reformed Christians, we sometimes, even oftentimes, come across as arrogant in our knowledge of doctrine, Scripture, and, and all sorts of other things. It's undeniable that the Reformed tradition and Reformed Christians value education. We require our ministers to have a, a great degree of education, years of seminary after undergraduate degrees, after grade school, um, after grade school work. Sadly, the accusation of arrogance can be well deserved in many cases, and and you know we who have been Reformed Christians for any length of time would be lying if we said that we've never run up against that accusation, even against ourselves. In response to that, we might be tempted to cast aspersions on the truth, to hold our convictions with a loose grip in order to not to appear overconfident. You know, to say something like, um, rather than the well, the word clearly teaches us this. We might be tempted to say something. Well, I think the Bible says that. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's the case. And that seems humble. That that appeal to a possibility of of ignorance or just not having it all together. And yet Christ, the very model of Christian virtue and humility, speaks with absolute authority. What is the relationship between humility and truth? You know, that's a, a great question. And so I actually have two chapters on that in the book, one dealing with our individual acceptance of truth, and then the other dealing with, all right, how do churches adopt confessions of faith, which are both standing on the truth and humble towards other traditions? And honestly, I, I haven't seen that addressed explicitly in, in some of the other good books on humility that are that are out there. And basically, the relationship is is this: we are not relativists. Uh, the world says to be humble means to not ever admit to anything being true, uh, which, as many have pointed out, really is a a truth claim. So we would say, if God has said something, the most humble thing we can do is to embrace it and proclaim it. There's nothing arrogant about that. But as you mentioned, sometimes, particularly we in the Reformed tradition, have, have, have not expressed truth in a humble manner. We've, we've lorded it over others. And so uh, I think reading through the book of Proverbs teaches us humility and wisdom in regards to truth. And I think it's true, as we were talking about before the the, uh, the, the the interview started, that some things we just don't know. And sometimes Calvinists have a hard time admitting we don't know things. <laughs> and then, frankly, we don't know most things. And so even though we stand firmly on God's Word, we have to do it as sinners that have been shown truth by grace. And then that would make us humble and gentle towards those that don't yet see that truth. We see Paul being gentle with the churches he established. Um, Philippians 3.15, he says, if God has not yet shown you something, he will in time. Uh, that's my paraphrase. And, and so it is a tricky business. And I, that's why, again, towards the end of the book, I have a whole chapter on, uh, on how it is. There, there's certain truths we hold firmly without apology, 
There's other truths that we believe the Bible teaches, but we recognize other good Christians follow their consciences in different ways. So we might look at baptism, for instance. And then there's some issues that are adiaphora, matters that are indifferent, that the most humble thing to do is probably to die to your, to your own preference for the sake of the unity of the Church. You gave the example of baptism as uh, a point of doctrine that men of good faith and in good conscience can disagree on and yet still call themselves each other brothers. Um, you know, the things that we hold tightly, that we cannot give up, are, are some of the, the basics. I'm not talking about finer points of doctrine, I'm talking about the foundation of Christian truth. We can say with all authority, the Bible teaches the absolute sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches that man exists for God's glory. And also, just the, the basic truth that God saves sinners, and man cannot save himself. These are things I think we can say with a lot of confidence. And uh, one question, though, that comes into this as we think about the other types of truth and, and how we interact with it and apprehend the truth is, where does Christian mystery fit into this and interact with this idea of Christian humility? Oh, I think a, a great deal. In fact, uh, George Marsden, who I mentioned, who taught me about the Puritans uh, when I was at, at Duke, he, he said... Uh, one, one, one reason he was a Calvinist is because it really celebrated mystery, that we didn't have to try to understand everything, that we put our trust in God's sovereignty. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are many things God has not revealed to us. His ways are not our ways. And so that, that gives us a certain humility that we do stick to the firm word of God, the things that are perfectly clear, like you just mentioned. But we don't have to, for instance, interpret history as if we know what God was doing all the time. I think a lot of Christians fall into that error. Uh, we can tentatively interpret things and say, I think God was doing this with this country or that uh, war or, or tragedy, but we don't know. And I think it can be refreshing in our evangelism uh, to unbelievers to, to say, we, there are a lot of things we don't know. We're not trying to impose by fiat um, any sort of constriction on your own conscience. I think that's why a lot of non-Christians are afraid of Christians, is they, they feel like they'll lose a freedom of conscience, and it's actually the exact opposite. There's a question here of how humility interacts with other aspects of the Christian life. Where exactly does humility fit in? Is it, is it merely one among a host of virtues, or is it somehow more significant or less significant than other virtues in the Christian life? I think it's the virtue. <laughs> I think it's the number one um, characteristic of a growing Christian. That's what I argue in the first part of the book. So to neglect humility is not the same thing as neglecting, say, a Christian view of, of uh, banking or a Christian view of eschatology or something, although that's very important as well. It's, I think, to neglect it is to neglect the heart of the gospel. Now, a good question might be, then, why doesn't the Bible explicitly talk about humility more? And I, I think it talks about it plenty. But I think the reason is this. If you make humility the goal itself, it will become fleshly, uh, and it won't be real humility. It's, that's what Paul warns against in Colossians 2, about a false religion that is based on human rule-keeping. And so therefore, what the Bible talks about is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ-centered. Um, but the, the, 
But the only way to be Christ-centered is, is, as John the Baptist said, that we would decrease and he would increase. That is humility. And so to grow in faith and hope and love is humility. It's putting God's glory first. It's putting others' needs first. It's waiting our reward in heaven instead of the rewards of this life. I think all of that is humility. So I think it's right there at the middle, and we neglect it to our great harm. When we think that of the task of preaching, the the you know the mission of the church, it's to point away from us and to the risen Savior Jesus Christ, who saves sinners. So even though we might not say, "Hey, look how humble we are," because we're pointing at Jesus, that would defeat the whole purpose if we called attention to our humility. Um, even in how we even in how we uh, execute the mission of advancing the kingdom through the proclamation of the word, we are, in fact, modeling humility insofar as we're successful in that mission and we're faithful to it. Exactly. And so that's why you don't want to talk about it too much, interestingly. In fact, I don't think I preach well on humility, interestingly. Um, when someone says preach on this topic, I don't think I do well. What I, what I enjoy more is just looking at a text and saying, here's what a text teaches and how does it point us to Jesus? And you said it so well. And so when I'm doing that, and I'm not always talking about myself, that is the, that's modeling it. And, and it's, it's almost more insidious. And that's a good, a good way to grow in humility. Now, having said that, I do think it's appropriate from time to time for preachers to talk about themselves insofar as they show their need for Jesus. As Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses, that Christ's perfections uh, may be made more clear. Again, my paraphrase of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, I think that is. And so it's, I don't think you should never talk about yourself, but you've got to do it in such a way that people can relate to one sinner finding grace just like they can as well. And we have to testify to the mighty works of God. His mighty works of redemption are taking weak sinners and taking them from weakness into strength, from darkness into light. And so as, as we testify about that in our own lives, we bring glory to, again, the risen Savior, who, the Redeemer of our souls. That's, that's very helpful and material. And, and you know, all of this can be found in the book in one way, shape, or form as well. If it's not clear already, I really recommend this book, that you pick it up. If you have one book on Christian living you want to pick up this winter, this, make it this one, because it'll be well worth your time. Chris, you make the claim in the book that, quote, true Christian humility will necessarily manifest itself in radical, measurable ways, end quote. How can we measure the humility quotient, or HQ, in ourselves, in our churches, and in others? And I made that up, HQ thing. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that from you. Yo, you could take it. It's all yours. Yeah, I do think, I do think there's some measurable ways. I, I think we should avoid a sort of Gnosticism that just says humility is so vague, so amoeba-like that it doesn't show itself. And I, I try to list out a few, a few ways, and I think the main one is— if you love God, if you're humble towards God, it will show itself in the way you treat other people, right? We don't see God, but we see our neighbor. Um, and so some of the obvious ones are literal mean, uh, service, menial tasks. I think it's significant that one of the two officer classes in the church, men who officially represent Jesus, uh, are deacons, or those that are table servers, and that Jesus Christ himself referred to himself as a servant of tables. That's, that's Luke 22. So 
that's one way, and I'm not good at it, but thankfully a lot of people around me are. Um, another is is when you get into conflict, when you get into arguments, when you go into meetings, are you just willing to let the truth be the truth and submit to other people's agendas if they happen to be right? Or is it about winning? Is it always about getting your way? And sometimes your way is right, but it's not because it's yours, but because it's based on truth. So a willingness to defer your own agenda. Um, maybe another way is when God does give you success, as you said, point point them to to the mighty works we have in Christ, but don't glory in it. Um, be careful of those around you that might be struggling. If if you or if you're doing great in your career, and another brother at 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 the prayer meeting is unemployed, maybe be very careful about the way you give God glory for, for your, your job. Um, think about him or her more than you do about yourself. So those are, those are some others, I, and there's some others spelled out in the book as well, but, but I think it very much uh, humility shows itself in very concrete ways uh, that doesn't bring attention to yourself, but pours yourself into the lives of others and, and their well-being. All of these flow forth from a humble heart, but the point is here that they necessarily flow forth. If you have a humble heart, the gift of God, a contrite spirit, um, it will manifest itself by necessity, and and I think that's that's well articulated in the book and um, the concreteness of of the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of God is such that um, that you can't miss it when you read Scripture. And a lot of times, humility is never named as such, like in the Proverbs and in the Psalms, but rather we're given clear examples of these, these, these people who right. are clearly humble and are commended to us as such. And we're going through Ruth right now in Hebrew Exegesis 1 with Michael Morales, and you're struck by the, the humility of Boaz and of Ruth mm-hmm. and, uh, and of Naomi as well as uh, exemplars in the faith, though with faults and foibles of their own, too, and they don't back away from that. Moving on, back to rediscovering humility here, you recognize later on in the book that there's a strong note of victory in the Christian life as we look ahead to our hoped-for reward in Christ. How does humility play into our eschatological hope in the victory of Jesus Christ? A, a good bit. Uh, it, it's very significant. And, and again, in Luke 14, that's really the main theme there, that when we throw a feast, we do it to help others who cannot repay us. And then Jesus gives us the reason why. He says, so that you will be rewarded uh, at the resurrection of the righteous. And so, of course, we are righteous by Christ's blood alone. But as you said, if if we are justified, if we're trusting Christ, it will manifest itself. It will come out. Good works will follow. But the whole point is this. We know one day we're going to be raised with Christ visibly. We'll get our new resurrected body. We'll get reward enough that will last forever, a mansion prepared for us, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin. And so there, there's a, a, a great sense in which humility says, wait for them. Right now, so here's the question. The question always is, are, is the Christian life supposed to look like Jesus in his first coming or his second coming? And there are many Christian traditions, including the health and wealth gospel, that emphasize the glory of the second coming, and they say that is, 
should be now manifest today. So the Corinthians apparently held to that error in part. So in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes them. He says, already you've become kings, sarcastically. Uh, And yet he says, here's what a real Christian leader looks like. We are like those at the end of the parade condemned to die. We are considered as scum and dregs. And so Christian humility recognizes that right now, the church and the Christian life should look more like Jesus on the way to the cross than Jesus in his glory. But even as we die to ourselves, even as we go through trials, even as we pick up our cross daily, inwardly, we have this glory. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Uh, inwardly, we know that we are royal sons and daughters. And so it's, it's, it's keeping that balance in mind that I, that, I, that I try to tackle in this book as well, particularly in that section, that chapter about humility and eschatology. How is humility—we've already spoken about some of this, Chris, and I understand that, but how is humility pursued and experienced within the life of the Church, corporately speaking, the congregation, and then also in the life of a denomination? The, the main thing is to ask the question. The main thing is for the pastor and the elders and the deacons and the, the women leaders in the Church to actually ask the question, is this program promoting humility? Is the way we're doing evangelism promoting humility? Is the way that we're worshiping promoting humility? I think the Reformed tradition actually has been very good on this in protecting humility in the way we do worship, that we try to keep things simple uh, and directed towards God alone. But we can stray from that. Uh, I think in evangelism, who are we trying to attract to the church? I note, again, 1 Corinthians, that Paul's Never, he says, to the Jews he became a Jew, to the Greek he became a Greek, to the weak he became weak, but he never says to the strong I became strong. I think sometimes churches try to be attractive and to the upper crust of their town, and I, I think that goes runs counter to to the call of the New Testament. So, I think the main there are a lot of different ways I spell out in several chapters in the book, but I, I think the main thing is to ask the question. Um, are, are we not just promoting individual humility, but when people think of our church, do they think of us as a humble church, which points people to, to Jesus alone? Um, as far as denomination, um, I'll just say a couple things. One is that we try to include everybody uh, and not just have certain celebrities run everything. Uh, I think we see that pluralism of leadership for instance, in Acts 15, where everyone, all the messengers had a had a voice and vote. Again, our polity and, and our denomination, the PCA, promotes that, but we don't always live up to its spirit, I think. Um, and then the second thing is that we're humble towards other denominations. We may think we are the most correct one on, on the planet, and perhaps we are. That doesn't mean we cannot learn from other traditions and, and, and praise God for what the good that we see in them as well. When we're thinking about posing the question, are we a humble congregation, some of the specific ways we can do it, you hinted at this in your answer, would be to ask, who is the focus of our worship? Or even more pointedly, 
who is exalted in our worship. And allow me to illustrate here in terms of music. Uh, many of our listeners know from previous podcasts that uh, for about 10 years, I was, I was an electric guitarist and bassist and on a praise team in, uh, in a church that left the PCUSA and went to the EPC. And I've continued to play guitar on occasion, uh, leading singing. Um, hasn't been in a stated worship service in a while, but um, at different... At different uh, different retreats or with kids or whatever, but it used to be the case, and I can't I can't even imagine doing it anymore. But um, where I would play a guitar solo in the middle of like a worship song, and uh, if you know, it's funny now thinking about it. Um, but there was definitely a lot of pride at work, at least in myself, and I, I would never accuse the people who asked me to do it or anything like that. But I, I wish that someone had come alongside of me and said, hey, Zach, I like your guitar solos. They're cool and all, but who is being exalted in the worship service when you rip into a, you know, a nasty guitar solo in the middle of a worship song? That's great. That's a great story. You actually are, are reminding me of uh, Jack Black in School of Rock. I don't, have you seen that movie? Yeah, I have. Um... They, 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 kick him, they kick him out of the band because of his, his solos. Um, Anyway, oh, um, boy. so so you were Jack Black at your church. Um, that's a highest the highest compliment. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I, I I I guess I just follow the reform tradition here that instrumentation is to help us sing. Yes, and I fully agree with that. And that's that would exalt that does exalt God, and it is I think the course of greater humility. Um, as much as I love guitar solos, I mean. I, but yeah, just not <laughs> not usually not in a worship service, you know. Now we talked about what it, how we can pursue humility in our congregations, even in our denominations. But what does Christian humility in the church look like to the watching world? How concerned should we be about our, you know, our PR or the perception of us to to the world around us, to the to the unbeliever? I think I think quite a lot, depending on what you mean. I, I don't think that means that we accommodate culture. Um, I, I, I think we ask the question, what does God want uh, from our church uh, and from our worship? But I do think it means that we are careful about branding. I, I, I think you can look at, again, evangelicalism, and you see that churches are just about building their own tribe. Uh, and so I think there's some practical things we can do in which a visitor comes to church and they might say, well, I didn't like that church, but they talked about Jesus. They did not talk about themselves. I think there's some practical things we can do. Make sure our pulpit has a cross or nothing on it and not our church logo. Um, make sure that we're talking about growing the kingdom and not just our own congregation. Make sure we pray for other churches of all stripes that they see we're not about, again, not just about trying to build up our own power. Uh, I, I, I talk at the very last chapter about, I think there should be a bias towards church planting rather than multiple services or growing one's own congregation to a, a huge size. Uh, I think all of these things actually communicate a lot to the world and might edge um, or, or mitigate against some of the cynicism that, that uh, they see. Uh, 
or that they may have towards evangelicalism in particular. And I think that the diaconate plays a huge role in this as well, right? Um, the, the Church is, is called primarily to be an, an institution that proclaims the truth. However, there's also—and maybe I shouldn't use however, I should use just and—and and also we are called to, um, to be an institution of service, especially yes. within the brotherhood of believers with, uh, to each other, but also to the community around us. And I think that that displays humility unless we go about it in an, with an air of superiority and, and say, oh, look, we're God's gift to man. Um, aren't we great? You know, you can, you can mess, you can mess any good thing up, uh, with the wrong attitude. I think that, I think that's huge. If I can follow up on that briefly. Um, I think I have a quote in the book by John Giraudot, which I got from one of your, um, professors actually, if I'm remembering this correctly. It's on page 112. I actually had it bookmarked because I'm going to use it, uh, in the seminary social media that stuck out to me as I was going through the book. Yeah, there you are. And, um, Basically, he says, if you have a church without poor, you need to ask, are you even a church, as I'm paraphrasing this, because of 1 Corinthians 1, that, that uh, consider your call, brothers, not many of you are wealthy, not many of you are noble, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame, shame the wise. So I'm, I'm adding a little bit into that, but let me, I think it is okay to brag about other Christians, so I want to brag about our deacons for just a second. They do a great job bringing some of the needy people into our church, and they bring them into worship. They don't just give them money or food and send them on their way. They incorporate them in our church body. Some of them have joined, um, and it adds a certain flavor to our church that I think is important. I mean, it's just lovely. I love it. At the same time, and I'm saying this tentatively, I think it's, it's kept some people away from our church that we don't have that upper crust feel that maybe they wanted when they thought that they thought they might get from a Presbyterian church. But I, I think it's reflecting the heart of Christ, and I, I just commend our deacons on their good work in this. That's a beautiful testimony. It, you know, I spoke earlier about that, that uh, mainline Presbyterian church in which I grew up that went into the EPC, and I think that's a step in the right direction. And um, I might you know, some people might listen to the podcast and think I was ragging on their style of worship, and that really wasn't the case. It was more ragging on myself and my own attitude. But, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I can brag on on that congregation, particularly the pastor under whose ministry I was converted, um, we every or that congregation, I should say, I wasn't all that involved in this aspect of the ministry, but they would host for a full month out of the year. Um, a group of about 40 to 50 homeless people who would come and live in our fellowship hall or sleep in our fellowship hall. Um, they would get bussed in by a, a local um, ministry, uh, parachurch ministry that, that works with uh, the homeless and, and disadvantaged. And then uh, in the morning, they'd be given breakfast, a bag, lunch, and sent on their way. And from what I understand, and on one, on one sense, it's heartbreaking, but on the other sense, I'm really thankful for my church that I grew up in. We were the only church to invite those folks to come to worship on the Lord's Day. I bet. Rather, you know, we would say, obviously we'd give the people the option, you don't have to come to services on Sunday morning, but if you'd like, uh, we can arrange for alternative transportation, so you don't have to take, you know, the the provided transportation from the parachurch ministry back into the city. You can can stay with us uh, for the morning service, and we'd always have a handful usually sitting right up front uh, under the preaching of the Word. 
I'm so thankful for that example to me. I, I hope I hope I don't quickly forget it. Um, it definitely left an impact on me as a as a kid. You have a chapter in here on Christian leadership and humility. How does humility define Christian leadership according to Christ's example and instruction? Others have written uh, pretty well about this, but I just tried to add a, a few things. One is, of course, Jesus is is the great example and the famous passage in Mark 10, where he says, you know how the Gentiles lorded over one another, but not so with you. If anyone would be great, let him become the servant of all. For even the Son of Man, that's him, of course, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so then Paul expands upon that in 1 Corinthians 4, as I've already mentioned. Uh, Jesus on the way to the cross is the model for, for true Christian leadership. Of course, there's the famous passage in Philippians 2, the great hymn of the early church, where Jesus going to the cross is is our model, that we consider one another as more important than ourselves. Um, and so I think this this plays itself out a little bit in the way we we uh, the way we promote leadership within the church. What are we looking for? And we're looking for servants. I think it also shows itself in whether we exalt titles or not. So I, I make some suggestions here I don't expect everyone to agree with, but I do think Presbyterians in particular need to think through our use of the, 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 the title doctor, need to rethink the, the, um, through why we wear robes, since Jesus warns about that in Matthew 23. And my little, I love wearing robes, but my rule of thumb is if you love it, maybe you shouldn't do it. <laughs> Because <laughs> he warned, he warned against it, right? So at least take that seriously. So that's that's sort of what going into Matthew twenty three. That's my plea: is what, however you come down on some of these practical issues, read that chapter through and Jesus' strong rebukes of the Pharisees, and and take these things um, seriously and, and and try to incorporate them as you lead your church. And just a word here for our listeners who are considering picking up the book and wondering, should I read this? It sounds like I'm going to disagree with some of the the points of application. At no point does the tone of the book seem browbeating or condescending. It's it's very much dialogical. It's uh, for your consideration, or think about this, or at the very least, you should be asking these questions. And that that's very helpful to me um, as that was very helpful to me reading through it, and and I think that would be helpful to you all as well who are listening. Chris, in your closing chapter, you put forward the contrasting images of factories and gardens. Whereas many churches today are functioning like factories uh, and production uh, systems or whatever, you say that they should be seeking to be more like gardens. And what did you mean by this? Yeah, I, in, in some ways, this is kind of the heart of the book and what, what inspired me to write it. Um, as I began to get involved in various churches, uh, all of which have been been wonderful in, in different ways. But as I've looked at the general evangelical culture, again, it just seemed in so many ways everything was geared towards productivity and efficiency. And in membership classes, the very first thing they want to do almost is to see what your gifts are and how you can plug into the ministry and help the ministry advance. And I do think that's part of the Christian walk, but I, I think we've majored on that as the Christian church, I think even in the way we do discipleship, where we look for key people and we tell leaders, make sure you pour yourself into key people and let them in a pyramid fashion pour themselves into the needy. I think we should challenge that way of thinking as well. So my idea of a garden is 
a little bit what Machen said uh, in Christianity and liberalism, where we need a place where we can come on Sunday mornings where we're not hearing about all the rantings and ravings of the world uh, and being enlisted in some cause or another. Really, it's about grace. A garden's a place where you can go and be refreshed, where you can find rest for your soul, where you rest in the works of Jesus and, and not in your own works. And, and I do think a humble church is going to feel a lot more like a garden than a factory. It doesn't mean it's not productive. It doesn't mean that it's not effective for the kingdom. And certainly, I, I hope it grows. But guess what? Gardens grow as well. So it's, it's kind of an image I'm trying to leave in, in our mind as, as I wrap up the book. And I love that image. And you can press the, the metaphor even further. You could say, you know, factories produce things of value for the world, yes. But gardens that are well-tended, well-cultivated, nourished and nurtured, they bring beauty into the world. And you even export beauty out of gardens as flowers are trimmed and given as gifts to close friends and family members who then take that beauty and, and put it on their dining room table or on their mantle in, in a vase, and it, and it brings beauty to the whole house. And so this this image of the church as a garden is one that I love, as well as images like the church as hospital, the church as school, and, and all other kinds of, of images that capture different aspects of the Christian ministry, even as you're unified around the proclamation of the Word, and invariably the, the display, the full display of the beauty of Christ, because that's what really we're talking about when we talk about the beauty of humility, is the beauty of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. Chris, do you have any um, additional thoughts to share with our listeners before we conclude? Jesus has your back. Um, I, I don't want this book to be a burden to people. I do think we should be challenged. Um, I mean, it's, no, it's never fun to die to yourself and confront your hidden prides. But Jesus is on our side in this. So I, I love Psalm 45.4, which is a, a wedding psalm, and it's about the bridegroom, and it says, and I think, of course, it's about Jesus. And it says, he rides forth victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. So I, I just am so confident and I'm so joyful that, that my best friend and my king is on my side. And he is working a greater humility in me. And it's for his glory. And it's for my good. And, and so... In a lot of ways, and there's some other books that talk about this maybe even better than mine, humility is, is a balm. Humility is, is a grace. It's a joy because you, you can just relax and stop trying to make yourself great and just celebrate the greatness of Christ. And whatever good he wants to do through you, that's gravy. And, and the ironic thing, of course, is in a sense, the less good you try to do yourself, and just try to have more of Christ, in the end, you'll end up doing more good. And, and maybe in the eyes of the world, it just looks like a widow's might. But Jesus said the widow gave more uh, than all of the wealthy people that did it for show. So I really believe in, in, in the spiritual reality of the hidden kingdom, that God is glorifying himself in lots of small ways uh, and through our small acts of service, uh, every day. And I, I just, I want that to encourage people. Amen. That's a good word 
Chris, and, and I thank you for it. I thank you for your time as well. If you're listening to the podcast, you've made it this far. Uh, for what it's worth, I heartily encourage you to get this book. Nobody's paying me to say that. I bought the book for myself um, months ago after I saw it featured in By Faith magazine. And uh, I sent a note to Chris and said, hey, I really appreciated that, and I'm picking up the book, and and I'm glad that we finally were able to connect and, and have Chris on the podcast. But if you are at all interested in basking deeply in humility's beauty, studying its logic, practicing its ethics, and, and seeking to grow in grace and godliness yourself, this is a book I would heartily recommend to you. It's one that I'm going to return to again and again. There's a small shelf in my library of books that I come back to on a, on a regular basis to refresh and to to glean a, you know additional fruit from. So this is one of those books on that shelf. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. And me, uh, me too. Uh, you've been more than gracious, so thank you very much. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www dot gpts dot edu